Please pray with me. Lord God, thank you for this opportunity to come before you today. Lord, we pray that you would open our hearts, our minds. Lord, that we would uh, be able to hear your word and that we would be transformed by it, Lord. May these not be my words. May they not be empty words. But may they be your words of power, Lord, which we receive and are shaped by. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning. Anybody ever play golf before? Right? Or seen it happen, right? Every time you step up to the tee, it's the same. Well, not every time. If you've had a terrible day, right, it starts to get worse progressively and you, you enter with foreboding. But normally you walk up to the tee with this intense sense of hope, right? There is this feeling like that this time it's all going to work out for me. Right? And so you, you pull out your driver because the fairway looks like it's a country mile long, right? You know, you look like you can land an aircraft on that thing. And so you walk up there with hope in your heart, a golf ball in your hand. You put that golf ball on the tee, and you line up, get your feet set just right, you know, maybe do a loosen up swing. Line up on the ball with that driver. Take a deep breath. I like to say a little prayer because it helps, right? You know, any little bit. Then you pull back nice and slow, get up to the top, wait, pause for a second, and then just unleash the fury, right? You know, you come back down, swing through, stay looking at where your tee was, and then look up to behold the glory of your shot. (laughs) Right? And what usually happens when you look up to see where your ball went? You lost it, right? And the problem was you had visualized it, right? You had seen it. You had seen that in your mind, saw the ball soaring, just beautiful in the air like a falcon, you know, and then just landing and rolling farther than you ever could think it would go. But where does it usually not go? Right where you want it, right? Where does it usually go? Right in the trees, like that way or that way. Uh, Hopefully you don't hit a window. Right? At that point, you get in the cart and drive off as fast as you can. That's what I would do, at least. But you know what? In golf, there's always second chances. What do we call those second chances? A mulligan. That's right. And so your first ball was lost, so you pull another one out of your bag. Right? Because these come cheap compared to the shame of shanking your ball so poorly. Right? So you pull out your second ball, and everything starts over again. It's as though the world is right at the beginning. It is fresh. The dew is still on the ground, and you have a chance at redemption. Mulligans are a special thing. What do children call this phenomenon? Do-over, right? Absolutely. Do-overs. Children implicitly understand that games should always involve do-overs. Right? Because the first time you do it is never the right time. That was just a warm-up. Right, the second time, unless you do it right the first time, that's okay. Uh, the second time is the one that should really count. Children understand that we need do-overs. We need second chances. We need another opportunity because more often than not, that shot is going in somebody else's yard. Today, we're going to be studying a passage about second chances. It comes in the Old Testament. It's in the book of Jonah. Jonah was a prophet who lived in the 8th century B.C., long, long time ago. He was a prophet from a nation called Israel, and he had been sent by God, or he was commanded to go by God to Nineveh, which was the main city in a nation called Assyria. 
Nineveh is right there on the banks of the Tigris River. Uh, Anyone visited that area recently? (laughs) Right? You know, where it's kind of a hotbed right now these days. Uh, It was back then, too. Assyria was known as, like, a violent, powerful nation that really conquered everybody around them. So there was one problem with with Jonah getting this all-expense-paid trip to Nineveh from the Lord, is he didn't want to go. He didn't want to go to Nineveh. It wasn't in his day planner to go to Nineveh. In fact, it seemed as though Jonah would prefer that those Assyrians get toasted by the Lord instead of forgiven. Jonah was more in the shock and awe kind of things than the actual let's go and do the Lord's work in this place. So when God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh, he immediately boards a ship at Joppa, which is on the coast of Israel, heading to Tarshish. The only problem with this plan was that Nineveh was a few hundred miles in the opposite direction. Right? So Jonah is going basically to not Nineveh at this point. He's saying, get me a ticket to anywhere but there. He was trying to get as far as he could from Nineveh and as far away as he could from God. Now, there was only one minor flaw in this brilliant plan of Jonah's. What do you think that one was? How far can you get from God? You can't even if you go real fast? Like a nice stiff wind at your back? No, you can't. You can't get away. There was no escape. He was trying to get away from someone he can't get away from. It's like trying to avoid your taxes, right? You can't do it. No matter how far you try to go in the opposite direction, who will find you? The IRS. That's right. Same thing with the Lord, just in a good way, right? So God immediately begins to reel Jonah in. He sends a storm. Not just any storm. This is a crazy, epic proportion storm. I mean, it just comes out of nowhere. And so these sailors on the ship are terrified because their ship is about to break in half. I mean, this is an amazing storm that came out of seemingly no clouds on the horizon, just suddenly storm. And the the sailors know something is going on. They know something is going wrong. And so on the ship they say, all right, who ticked off God? And we know there's a lot of gods represented on this boat. So which one of your gods is mad? They all start wondering. And how do they figure it out? Anyone know what they do? They, they cast lots for it, right? They, they, they do the equivalent of drawing straws. And how, in the straws game, how do you know who's it? Short straw, right? So who do you think draws the short straw in this game? Jonah. And why does he draw the short straw? Who makes that happen? God. That's right. So God ordains that Jonah draws the short straw. And at that point, people get scared because they ask Jonah, okay, Jonah, who's your God? Right? Because they all had different gods. Right? Some of them had a god of like, one of them was a god of fire. Another one was a god of like Pop-Tarts. Another one was, you know, a god of, they had all had these different gods for different things. And so they asked Jonah, okay, Jonah, what's your god in charge of? Because maybe it's not a big deal. Maybe he's the god of like pufferfish or something. Right? But no, Jonah says, no, my god is the god of the land and the sea. And the sailors are like, no! And you've got it. And then Jonah says, yeah, it gets worse, though. Right? He's not just the God of the sea, but I'm actively disobeying him right now. Right? 
And so the sailors are like, no. And they don't know what to do. They have no idea what to do with this Jonah. Because he's like the hot potato, right? Nobody wants to be caught holding him at the end of this game, right? They want him, they want God to have him back, but they don't know what to do with the guy. And so Jonah says, throw me overboard. Throw me overboard and God will be satisfied. And they don't want to do it, but eventually they do because it's going to mean all their lives if they don't. So they toss him overboard and what happens immediately to the storm? Stops. Stops. Nothing. Calm. No wind. No waves. And then what happens to Jonah? He's there treading water, right? And then, nah, 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 nah. Right? So a giant fish comes by. Oh, swallows Jonah. Swallows him whole, right? So he's in the belly of the fish. It's amazing because after this, it says that the sailors on the ship, remember, they all had this like pantheon of gods, all these different gods. They all offer sacrifices to the God of Israel after this. It's pretty amazing, like, what happens to those, even those guys. So Jonah's now in the belly of the fish. And for the first time in this book, in the book of Jonah, we see him actually talk to God. Before this time, God had been trying to talk to Jonah, and Jonah had been running away. But in the belly of the fish, he begins to communicate with him. He repents for what he had done, and God eventually, after three days causes the fish to spit him out onto dry land. And that's where our passage begins. Our passage begins with the restating of the mission of Jonah. It says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah a what time? Second time. Right here reminds us, this is not the first time I've sent you on this thing, Jonah. Comes to him a second time saying, Get up, go to Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim to it the message that I tell you. Get up, go, I'll tell you what's going to happen when I get there. So without further ado, he goes to Nineveh. Now Nineveh is this huge, sprawling city. They think it had like a little less than 200,000 people in it at the time. But that's pretty big for the 8th century BC, right? That's pretty big for today. And so he goes to this place, but Nineveh is not known for being the nicest city. Right? It's like Miami Vice without Crockett and Tubbs. It's like everything is falling apart in this place, you know? There is just crime everywhere, full of licentiousness and sin. It's like the worst thing you can imagine is Nineveh. So you've got a couple hundred thousand people, and everyone's doing the wrong thing. And it's into this vile, enormous city that Jonah walks. And he walks one day into the city because it takes three days to walk across this town. He walks one day in, so he gets kind of near the middle. And he comes out with this brilliantly uh, scripted speech. He says, 40 days more and Nineveh shall be overthrown. The end. That's it, right? That's it. One sentence is what he gives. And what happens? They believe it. It's amazing. One sentence. I should try that on Sunday. You're probably at this point thinking, yeah, you should have tried it about five minutes ago. Right? One sentence is all it takes, and the people believe it. But no, they don't believe it. They believe something more than it. The passage says, and the people of Nineveh believed God. 
What's the difference, the difference between it and God? It's just a message, right? God is the person. They believe God. Did he say anything about God in his, in his sermon? No. No. He just said judgment's coming. He didn't give any kind of person to it. He didn't give anything. It could have meant like, you know, there was a plague or something coming. It could have meant anything. But instead, the people turned and believed in God, the person. They proclaim a fast, and everyone great and small put on sackcloth. Everybody, the whole city, all nearly 2,000 of them, repented, put on sackcloth, and sought the Lord's forgiveness. They were transformed by the message of God. Now this satisfies God. Our passage ends with him being happy about it. But it makes Jonah mad. He's angry. And do you know why he's angry? He wanted them to be punished. And he knew this would happen. Our pa- not our pa- a little bit after our passage, it says, Jonah says to God, That is why I fled to Tarshish at the beginning. For I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and ready to relent from punishing. Jonah ran away because he knew the people would repent and he knew that God would forgive them and he didn't want to see it happen. He wanted judgment. He wanted wrath. He wanted those Assyrians to pay. But he knew as soon as God called him, what was going to happen, God was going to go and rescue them and redeem them. And he was mad about that because he didn't want to see it happen. Does that make you uncomfortable? It makes me uncomfortable. This story should lead, leave us feeling a little bit conflicted inside. It should leave us feeling both uncomfortable but also encouraged as well. We should be uncomfortable because the person who should have been faithful to God didn't want to listen to him. He knew God. He knew that God was merciful and gracious, but he didn't want to obey him. He knew that he was a recipient of that same grace, but he didn't want anyone else to have it. He didn't want to see the grace of God work in the lives of the Ninevites even when God did the miraculous thing through his one-sentence sermon, he was not happy to see their lives redeemed. The reality is, for us today, that God is going to bring some people to faith who we might be dissatisfied with. They might be icky. They might be people who've swindled us in the past. They might be people who've done horrible things in their lives. They might be people who we would never think would ever do something like that, like accept Jesus. And that might make us feel like Jonah. Or he might put somebody in our spot, in our pew, right? Somebody take our seat. Somebody who hasn't earned their cred here yet, right? He might do that. You might show up on a Sunday and somebody's there. Or somebody might come late and want to sit in your seat. And what then? That's almost worse than the first thing, right? When God gets a hold of people, 
it can make us uncomfortable because he does things in people's lives which shake up our things that we are used to. They shake up our normal. They challenge us to see things in different ways. God might even ask us to share the good news with someone we don't want to speak to. How will we react when this happens? How will we respond to the call of God? Will we choose to listen to him and to speak the gospel to all people? Or will we, like Jonah, try to run away and get as far as we can from God and the people we're called to? Now that's the uncomfortable part of this story. The comfortable part of the story is that this is a message of hope. This story of Jonah is a picture of grace. It shows us that God takes broken prophets and broken people and uses them for his glory. He uses them to redeem people who are lost in sin. No one, no matter how bad a Ninevite they are, is beyond his reach. I mean, he can even bring this cesspool of, of sin to righteousness, and that's what he did in Nineveh. That should give us hope. That should give us comfort. That should give us reassurance. This story, the story of Jonah, is a story of second chances. It's a story of a mulligan, right? It's a story of someone being given a second chance, and God working through that second chance to redeem many, many people. It reveals to us the reality that following the Lord, the reality that being a Christian is an exercise in returning to God. Every single day, we have to make a decision to return to the Lord, to follow him where he will lead us this day. Christianity is not something that you do once and then it's over. It's not just a conversion experience and then the rest of life doesn't matter. Christianity is a daily reaffirmation that we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we repent of our sins, and that we seek to follow him and obey him. This opportunity, this opportunity that we have seized as Christians, was made possible because there was another man who spent three days sealed up in darkness. There was another man who gave the world the sign of Jonah. But this one, this other man, was not in darkness because of what he had done, but because of what he was doing for the world. This man was God himself, Jesus Christ, who was crucified and buried for the sins of the world, for every last Ninevite or American out there. Then on the third day, Jesus Christ came back into the light through the power of God. And by his resurrection, he offers us forgiveness. Forgiveness for the ways in our lives that we've been like Jonah or like the Ninevites. God offers us a second chance. But not just a second chance, right? God doesn't just say, okay, you're running out of chances, does he? How many chances does God give us? Anybody put a number on it? Remember when uh, the disciples asked Jesus, how many times should I forgive my brother? Right, or my neighbor. 
Yeah, and basically what he said is infinite, infinity times, right? It just didn't fit very well in the passage, right? Infinity times. That's how many mulligans we have, right? He's just sitting there with a golf bag. (laughs) Handing them to us, right? Over and over again. Take another shot, Seth. Try it again. Turn back to me. Orient your club face appropriately. Get focused. Try again. I love you. You're my guy. That's what God is saying to us each and every day. He has bought those opportunities with his very life. He does not offer them to us lightly. We should not take this grace for license. We should not take this grace and say, "Ah, forget it, just put the whole box out there, God. I'll just hit him when I want. Right? Instead, we should respond to God with faith, with humility, with love, and ultimately, with obedience, as he calls us to go out into this world and proclaim that he is a God of second chances to a world which is deeply in need of redemption. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you do offer us second chances and third chances and fourth chances. Lord, you do not grow tired of us even when we're tired of ourselves and our terrible behavior. Lord, we pray that you would redeem our hearts, that you would make your desire for us, Lord, our desire for ourselves, that you would help to align us with your purposes, Lord, that you would make us flexible, faithful, willing to go where you call us, Lord, willing to accept those people who you bring into relationship with us, Lord, willing to sacrifice for those who come, Lord, and displace us. We pray that we would be humble, that we would be faithful, and that above all, we would listen to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.